When the girls talk Rose into sending in a personal ad, she's disappointed by the lack of results. Then after a few weeks, the perfect man appears in her inbox and it seems like happily ever after might be attainable. But that's not before the girls break some devastating news. Will Rose become the next Mrs. Isaac Newton? Will Sophia go out with Willie? Will someone please tell me how to spell Saskatchewan? All of that and more in today's episode, Love Rose? Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. A yellow cab comes speeding into the driveway before we head inside to find Rose wearing a fabulously light blue with light pink flowers sweater with a light colored shirt peeking out and tan slacks who has just sat down on the couch to reorganize her recipe file from back when you had special note card sized recipes that you could save in a plastic box. When a flustered Sophia comes dashing in the door and through the room in a black and pink floral print dress, exactly matching my living room wallpaper in the 90s, with a dark seafoam green cardigan. She was supposed to have gone to a card game, but the route on the local bus had changed, leading her to getting lost and having a presumed Cuban man yell at her for the Bay of Pigs. When it comes to the number 10 bus route in Miami, Sophia was going somewhere along the way of Northeast Miami Gardens Drive at 19th Avenue to the Omnibus Terminal along Northeast 15th Avenue, 12th Avenue, and 2nd Avenue. Stops include the 167th Street Metrobus Terminal and the Adrian Arsht Center Metro Mover Station. Local service runs seven days a week. That is all. Permanece centavos, por favor. The reason I am making the assumption the man who yelled at Sophia about the Bay of Pigs was Cuban is because it was the site of an attempted invasion into Cuba by the U.S. In April 1961, 1,400 Cuban exiles, who had been trained by the U.S. government, attempted to overthrow the newly empowered leader of the country, Fidel Castro. But word spread quickly to Miami, where the Cuban community was all made aware of the plan. Even Castro knew about it. According to JFKlibrary.com, the newly sworn-in president didn't want the U.S. connection made by anyone, so the mission was to be extra covert. Wanting to start with an airstrike, the U.S. painted World War II planes to look like Cuban fighters. They then missed their targets, and when photos of the planes were released and it was clear America was involved, the airstrike stopped. Then, on April 17th, the fighters that landed in the swampy area known as Bay of Pigs were caught and fired at immediately. Ships were sunk, planes destroyed. Two days later, no longer concerned about U.S. involvement, Kennedy sent fighter jets to assist. The pilots misunderstood the time change, and when arriving late, they were basically handed to Castro on a silver platter. Defeated, Kennedy retreated. Of the 1,400 trained Cuban fighters, 100 perished and 1,200 surrendered, and some escaped. 
Those that were captured were held for the ransom of $53 million in medicines and baby food for Cuba. And there you have, in a very small nutshell, the Bay of Pigs. When retelling her harrowing story of the great bus mix-up of 1986, Sophia unknowingly explains the confusion. It's so obvious even Rose realizes what happened. Sophia accidentally got on the number 7 bus. Sophia is so worked up, she's going to write a letter to David Horowitz. David Horowitz is a famous racist, anti-immigrant, anti-human conservative writer. He started his career as a progressive. It wasn't until Reagan's second term he turned to the right and has been doing unhelpful things ever since, like creating a center and most recently wrote the book I Can't Breathe, How a Racial Hoax is Killing America. Seeing as he had just gained his Republican popularity in 85 after a life with communist parents and as a member of the Marxist Party, maybe Sophia was hoping that by writing him, he would get all worked up about communists or progressives and public transportation. Even if she did get on the wrong bus and the number difference was her own fault, Sophia is still going to write. Maybe David can put his hate and anger into a good place, like fixing the teeth of actor David Harper. Oh boy, Sophia. David Harper is an actor who is best known as Jim Bob in The Waltons. And yes, he used to have teeth that appeared to not get along with one another. As someone that suffered with monster teeth as a youngster, I can say, Sophia, you're being a bully. Sure, this guy was in his mid-twenties when the joke was made, but no one wants something that they're insecure about to be joked about. He has since gotten new teeth, and they look great. And you know what? Funky teeth or not, he has a long, successful career that probably paid a lot of his bills for a very long time. Coming out of the hallway in a chain that only draws the eye to her spare tire, Dorothy is in a dark purple flowy combo with a light purple pink scarf accenting it. Or looking like an ace bandage she lost the roll back into a roll for the first aid kit battle with. It's hard to believe, but Dorothy has a date, and she wants to borrow Rose's bracelet. After Rose informs Dorothy of her exciting recipe-based plans for the night and hasn't given a yes or no to the bracelet, Dorothy asks if Rose is planning on getting formally dressed for the event or if she can just borrow the thing. Once given permission, Blanche enters the picture in a weirdly young outfit for her. Coco, I know you had some thoughts on this outfit. My first thought upon seeing it was Power Rangers. Oh, yeah. Formal, formal Power Rangers. A villain, maybe one of the... A, a bad lady who makes monsters go fight the Power Rangers? Yes. Something like that. And it wasn't, I didn't like it. It was kind of like, it wasn't that like, oh, she's too old to wear that. But it was kind of like, was that made for a doll? You know, it, it was like so childlike almost with the tufted shoulders and the long sleeves. And it was so boxy, like from her hips up. It was it's just a square. It's impossible to tell what what that shirt is for <laughs> like when you'd wear you would when I guess in the house is when you should wear it. Yeah, and it seemed very ever. stiff, like not comfortable at all. And it made it I'm I'm not sure it's not a body shame thing here. It's just like it made her boobs look like two little M&Ms underneath. It was not good. What kind of M&M? Peanut. Nice. <laughs> To compliment Blanche's outfit, she's borrowing Rose's pearl earrings for her date. 
I really like how even in asking for jewelry, you get a sense of who these characters are. Dorothy is, of course, asking and then being sarcastic about it. And Blanche comes out with the earrings in her hand and makes a joke about how Rose is the second longest person to go without a date that she's ever known. The winner was Heather Swain. She became ill with the croup and had to go to the sanitarium for long-term health care. With swelling around your vocal cords, windpipe, and bronchial tubes, the croup, an infection of the upper airway, is known for its accompanying cough. According to PhysicianOne.com, it's most often babies and toddlers that catch the virus, which usually starts as a cold. So Blanche's whispering of, it was a social disease, as though the croup was a sexually transmitted infection, isn't exactly accurate. I suppose if your lover had croup, the easily transmittable illness could then be considered an STI. Seeing as you take an antibiotic to treat it, penicillin may or may not be involved. However, it sounds like the gal may have been using croup as a disguise for a more taboo illness. Although I can't really think of a um, of an STI that involves a cough, besides the croup or a cold. Crabs. <laughs> Feeling defeated as the last dateless lady standing, Rose suggests Blanche just keeps the earrings in case she ever, if ever, needs them again for a date of her own. Blanche and Dorothy hype her up before the words can even leave her mouth. Of course you'll date, Dorothy says. But Blanche offers not just a pep, but a suggestion. Why don't you advertise? Implying her clothing advertises her availability and promiscuity, Rose says she could never dress like Blanche. Not just that... Not all of her wool skirts have a liner, so she has to wear underwear. That wasn't exactly what Blanche meant. She's talking about the personal section in the paper. Even Dorothy is excited about it, although I don't think she would ever do it, but wow, does she know a lot about it. You don't have to reply to every letter. It's free to run your ad at the community center, and Blanche knows even more, that they'll put your picture and 100 words. She, of course, only knows these things via word on the street. All of the excitement has Rose willing to try it out, but it wouldn't be very helpful. Even if she did get a response, the idea of meeting up with a man she met via the paper is just too strange. According to Wiktionary.com, it's ancient Greek physician Hippocrates we have to thank for the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. In one of his works, he stated, for extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure, such as restriction, are most suitable. Am I dumb that I didn't understand what that meant? No, I think it's saying like restriction, perhaps like food restriction or something. So basically people took that quote and turned it into instead of extreme diseases saying extreme times oh, I see. and desperate times means. So if it's an extreme disease, you can do an extreme method of cure. And if it's a desperate time, you take desperate measures. Was my understanding. I think that's a perfect understanding, and thank you for explaining it. You're welcome. And it turns out Rose is in need of an extreme method of cure. When graham cracker-wielding Sophia comes in from the kitchen, she too needs to borrow something of Rose's, her silk scarf. It looks like Rose is the only person in Miami without a date, because Sophia has one too. Or perhaps she's dancing the seven veils, but currently only has six. We'll have to wait and see. As you all know, I'm not exactly a Wikipedia about Bible stuff, but you know what is? Wikipedia. 
And according to Wiki, the dance of the seven veils in Salome's dance performed before Herod II in modern stage, literature, and visual arts. It is an elaboration on the biblical story of the execution of John the Baptist, which refers to Salome dancing before the king, but does not give the dance a name. So there you go. That answers all your questions, right? Do you know anything about seven brides for seven veils? So I believe he was beheaded and that his head might have been on a plate of some sort or that his head kept talking after it was cut oh, off. Of course. And he was an important guy. Hey, man, he was uh, sure. I don't know. <laughs> You're right. He was beheaded and his head was put on a platter. Images really stick when you see them in, <laughs> when you're, when you're in second grade. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Going to church and seeing wood cuttings, uh, wood carvings of Jesus being like led to his assassination. <laughs> it's whipped. weird that you have anxiety. Huh? <laughs> Death! Using her graham cracker that appears to be a classic honey maid but looks like a cinder block in her tiny little petite hands, Sophia blocks her mouth to whisper her concerns about Rose's well-being before walking to her room. Before speed dating and swiping, there were personal ads in the paper. In some states, like Florida, there were even single-specific papers. It wasn't uncommon for people to use these. Sure, at first for some it seemed odd or perhaps even desperate, but just like with online dating, as the success stories started to become more and more common, the stigma of personal ads went by the wayside. According to the South Florida Sun Sentinel in 1987, the bi-weekly single living paper started in February 1983 with only 8,000 subscribers. Just four years later, they were up to 51,000. In each paper, there were about 400 personal ads with diverse listings. It didn't matter if you were a 20-year-old restaurant employee or a 70-year-old retiree. You could find love in the back of the paper. And who knew? Perhaps the one who would answer your ad would be your own lovely lady, like the tale of love renewed in one of my favorite songs, Escape. If you'd like For anyone that hasn't listened to the words of that song, it's called Escape, the Pina Colada song. That's also a good thing to know at Trivia, that it's actually called Escape, not the Pina Colada song. He is bored of his old lady, and so he gets the paper, he reads the personal section, and he sees one that says, you know, you like Pina Coladas, da-da-da-da-da. And he's like, I'm nobody's poet, but I'm going to give it a shot. And he responds, and he puts his things of what he likes. And then they're like, oh my gosh we're in love let's meet and they go to a bar called O'Malley's and he's sitting there waiting he's so excited to meet the person he's going to cheat on his wife with and then the door opens and it's his wife and they smile and they laugh and they said oh well I didn't know you liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain and all these things and they go oh I didn't know you like this that and the other so they had never communicated in their relationship which was leading to the cheating and then they did communicate and they renewed their love for each other but also without addressing the problems it was the 70s oh, come that's on true. they just wanted some piña coladas that's right <laughs> That's what I love about it. It's such a slimy, grimy song. And it's all like people just like groove to it. You know, it's such like white people sway music. 
She had already done it. He's the one reading it. He's feeling bad about reading the personals. She'd already sent one in. And I mean, I'm sure she's thinking like, please don't, please don't ask me if I've done this before. Uh Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Please, God, don't think about that. (laughs) That's an upsetting song. I didn't know it went that far. Yeah. Just it's all the it's it's a very premeditated cheat. Mm hmm. It's quite. Yeah. Quite. I mean, you have to write a letter, mail it in, get it printed. So you're talking a week right there. First degree cheating. And then uh, however long it took him to see the article and then write in. So we're talking multiple weeks here. The long con. Of his life just sitting there thinking about <laughs> hoping that that will turn his way. I just love, too, that she comes in. He knew her smile in an instant and the curves of her face. And when they recognize each other, they go, and we laughed for a moment. And I said, oh, I never knew. Like, they just chuckle. Like, I just, I didn't know you wanted to get caught in the rain. Can you believe that I was going <laughs> to cheat on you and you were going to cheat on me? Oh, that's funny. Sounds like they deserve each other. Truly. Mm-hmm. As we make our way into another day, I'm once again curious about what time it is. When Sophia entered the house, Rose asked if her card game ran late, but it's bright out. Not that you can't have a card game early in the day, but it seems a little odd. But then she gets home and is wanting to go out on a date. But at the same time, Dorothy and Blanche are dressed for their dates, but it's still bright out. Are these Saturday afternoon dates? Is it the middle of summer and the sun doesn't set until 8.30ish? Is it the middle of summer and the sun doesn't set until about 8.30, but it's only 7? We'll never know. It's been at least a few days as Rose has already written, mailed in, and is awaiting responses to her personal ad. Dressed in a white sweatsuit, Rose is looking adorable, albeit disappointed when she learns there are no responses in the mail. Equally peeved is Blanche, who can't believe that, once again, her People magazine is late, which leaves her no other choice than to sternly speak to the mailman. Learning from previous encounters with said government employee, Dorothy isn't hopeful Blanche will get her magazine, as the last time there was a conversation between the two, it involved a Café Vienna, which is a Maxwell House instant coffee flavor or a cream and espresso-based beverage, and a warm bath. Also, kudos to Rue here for her fake nail polish acting. Top notch. Turning quiet time into a quiet celebration. General Foods International Coffees. In a knit sweater of dark blue with a black oversized seashell pattern, Blanche, doing her nails at the kitchen table, defends herself. Scandalously, the mailman was struggling with the weight of his sack after a recent hernia operation. A hernia is, gulp, when an organ slips through the abdominal wall opening. Basically, your insides start trying to fall out and get closer to accomplishing that than you would like. My dad had one in his belly button, which is probably why I have such an aversion to them. Whoa. Dorothy, in her yellow and white striped long-collared shirt we've seen in multiple shades on multiple episodes, is pouring her tea while rolling her eyes at the tea Blanche is pouring regarding the mailman. Since this show wasn't shooting for the married-with-children crowd nor looking to get angry letters, no further sack jokes were made. Turns out it's been two weeks since Rose sent in her ad, and it's hard to believe with a face like that she hasn't gotten a single letter. Now maybe she should go grab a warm drink and a bath with the mailman to try to figure out what the hell is going on. 
Before she can get too upset about it, a startled Sophia comes in from the kitchen garage outside mudroom door. With a stiff neck and walk in her denim dress and red cardigan, she asks the girls to check the window and look for a fedora. Turns out Sophia is being stalked by a British guy she met at the center. Crush or not, you shouldn't have to be scared you're being followed, Sophia. Sophia's not worried or impressed. Sure, he's got the hots for her, but how hot can a British guy get? Rose, on the other hand, is kind of jealous. She can't get a letter while Sophia is being literally chased. It's not something to be admired, Rose. Sheesh, ladies. Wanting to solve both their problems, Sophia offers up her stalker, Willie, to Rose. Not much to know, just that he's in his 90s, has a butt so saggy he kicks it when he walks, and his neck is so loose it looks like a waddle or the fleshy carnicle on a male turkey. Granted, he does wear a cap, very British, and an ascot, which is a neck-scarf-tie combo he probably uses to hide his waddle. With all of that said, and the fact that he's following her and making her uncomfortable and not taking no for an answer, Dorothy is still like, why aren't you dating him? Although Sophia could have simply said, uh, he's a stalker, she gives an equally good reason. They don't have any chemistry. What's to have, Dorothy asks. You're 80, he's 90. Sparks are unsafe at this point. On Sophia's side is Blanche, who agrees. No sparks, no date. Implying it doesn't take much for Blanche to feel any kind of sparks, Dorothy jokes that it's because of the flint, a rock that can be used to easily start a fire or create sparks, that she carries in her bra. Rudely, Rose is nearly disgusted at the fact that she's alone while she has to listen to Sophia's man issues. My, my, I think somebody's jealous. Still desperate to pawn off Willie, Sophia asks Rose once again if she'll take him. But it's a hard pass. We don't know if it was due to the age difference, waddle, or saggy butt. Teasing what she'll be missing out on, Sophia brags that Willie even remembers where he was the day Archduke Ferdinand was shot. And for all things World War I, we turn to my brother, Mac Holland. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, full name Archduke Franz Ferdinand Karl Ludwig Joseph Maria of Austria, no relation to the alternative band, was the heir to the throne of the Austrian-Hungary Empire. Austria-Hungary had a very strained relationship with Bosnia, causing a group of Bosnian rebels known as the Black Hand, even though they were a group of Serbs, to assassinate Franz Ferdinand in 1914, which caused a chain reaction of nations declaring war on one another, leading to the outbreak of World War I. Just like Joe the Plumber from when President Obama was facing off against John McCain and Sarah Palin, Uncle Sam was an actual guy. According to History.com, Samuel Wilson was a meat packer from New York who provided the army with barrels of beef during the War of 1812. The soldiers became so close to Samuel, they started calling the meals Uncle Sam's. In September of 1813, the nickname of Uncle Sam as a representative for the United States government became official. Of course, Blanche took uncle a little too literally and offers to ease Rose's pain. If he'd been your cousin, sure. But your uncle? Well, that's just not meant to be. Perhaps it's a southern thing. With incest running rampant in the Appalachian mountainsides in the Mr. Burt Reynolds film Deliverance, Dorothy can't help but ask if Blanche had family members appear in it. The WAC, or WAC, or Women's Army Corps, was an auxiliary unit to the United States Army. 
starting in 1943, ending in 1978 when the genders were integrated. But thousands more are needed. Women from all walks of life, sales girls, industrial workers, librarians, housewives, entertainers, office workers, executives, designers, teachers, college women, women of all races, all creeds, American women. In our pioneer days, women held the powder horn for their fighting men. Today, they are joining the WAC. When Rose wanted to join the WAC for the Korean War, which was from 1950 to 1953, she was asked to, then promptly failed, an inkblot test. How do you fail such a thing? Well, instead of saying what you saw in the imagery, she started to cut them out. But I feel like that would have given just as much insight into someone's thinking patterns as the test itself. Oh, sweet Rose. Swiss psychologist Hermann Rorschach didn't create the Rorschach, a.k.a. inkblot test. Those had been around since the days of da Vinci. What Rorschach did was combine the inkblots with psychology to give doctors a view into the mind of someone that might not be openly sharing their thoughts or were unable to. Being that it is blobs on a paper that are interpreted and then the interpretation is interpreted, it's no surprise the tests have always faced scrutiny as to their legitimacy. But at the very least, you aren't supposed to cut them out. You're supposed to see the shape of John Forsyth. Side note, hello, Herman. Please take a moment, not if you're driving, and Google image search Herman Rorschach. Wowie wow wow. There's a side-by-side photo of him with Brad Pitt from Seven, and for good reason. This man melts my hagen dawes. I wonder what his test would say about that. Getting denied by the army was the worst rejection Rose had ever felt. Until now. After putting herself out there and getting crickets, she is fed up with the personal ad. Doing something she should have done in the first place, Blanche decides to throw Rose a bone, in the shape of her scrap boyfriend, Henry Barnes. He's a dry-cleaning business owner, is decent-looking, and drives a new Buick Riviera. For over 30 years, Buick was able to make the best American version of a European luxury car, and they called it the Riviera. It's no wonder Blanche sees the car as an upsell to the owner. If it was on the newer end, Henry Barnes spent a whopping $25,000 on the car, or about $60,000 in today's money. Touch a new Buick Riviera, and it touches you. After rattling off all the qualities that got Henry on Blanche's list in the first place, she's decided to call him and go on a date, leaving Rose to take out Bud Needham. He's the newest, lowest rung on Blanche's lover ladder. It would be kind of cute if they went out, though. Rose and Bud. Rose, Bud. It's a new day, and we get to go out on the lanai to join Blanche and Dorothy in a game of gin while discussing the most forbidden of lady conversation, abandoning your hairdresser. Sure, Blanche would rather have Marla do her hair than Jackie, but she's been seeing Jackie since the early 60s. They're basically family. I know it's been since the early 60s because that was the time of the bouffant, meaning to puff out, the name says it all. Bouffant hair isn't a beehive so much as an explosion of hair. Dorothy's in the final season is a good example. Sure, the style might go back to Marie Antoinette, who wanted big hair, but its modern credit goes to Raymond Besson, a British hairdresser in 1956. But once Jackie Kennedy was spotted with the big hair, there was no going back, and the style has ruled the heads of conservative white women to this day. Let us never forget its attempted return to the mainstream in the early 2000s via 
the bump it. Amazing, go sexy, elegant, casual, sassy, flirty, and fabulous. With bump it, you'll feel confident and beautiful every day. As someone that only goes to the salon once every few years, and yes, that's counting pre-COVID, I have no problem not going back to my hairdresser after seeing her feelings about masks, but I won't be missed. I have a friend, however, that goes often and her girl is over an hour away. Not only is that far, she's no longer the most fond of the gal's work, and she has expressed genuine stress about the situation, which I totally understand. You don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but you don't love their work, which doesn't mean they're bad. So hopefully they don't take it personally. Besides, it can't hurt to have a new set of eyes work some magic every once in a while. According to Huffington Post, there are some things you can do to properly break up with your stylist. One, be sure to talk to them about the issues you've had prior to the appointment. Then set a deadline for things to change, giving them a chance to make up for maybe an off day. Then trust your gut. If you're not loving it, move on. Also, keep your communication clear and simple. State what you're needing and why you might want to change. Finally, if you want, keep the option of returning open. Maybe you just want to see what someone else can do. Be open and honest, and remember, it's a two-way street. Maybe they don't like you or your hair, and they'll be overjoyed with the news. Don't think you're leaving a situation, and that's an end-all be-all. Blanche might have a solution. Dorothy takes her appointment with Jackie because even though she leaves Blanche all feathered like a chicken, it's a look that might work for Dorothy and her nose. Then Blanche can take the appointment with Marla. Blanche in a red and black sweater and Dorothy in a salmon pink sweater over a white turtleneck with a cameo are then joined by Rose in a light blue head-to-toe slack shirt cardigan getup. Elated, she shares the good news. She finally got a response to her ad. Feeling shy, her new admirer starts out on the right foot by apologizing for taking too long. Sweet, but is that really what you want, Rose? A coward? She goes on. They both love dairy. They both wanted to stand next to Burt Parks during Hands Across America. They have so much in common already. In the 80s, there was nothing more popular than celebrities doing elaborate charitable events. One of the biggest of all time was We Are the World, which was co-written by Michael Jackson, a man who, when presented with the new hot charity song of the moment, Hands Across America, put the kibosh on it because he didn't want it to take away from We Are the World. But Hands Across America was more than just a song written by some jingle writers and performed by no one of note. It was a commercial for the event of Hands Across America, whose co-chairs were comedian Lily Tomlin and a guy famous for putting sweaters and being a monster. The term Hands Across America kind of changes when that name is put with it. Oh boy. It took nearly a year to plan and was even met with protests from cities who were hurt when they were not included in the coast-to-coast route. But somehow, the over 4,000-mile plan came to fruition, and on May 26, 1986, radio stations played the song and nearly 6 million people joined hands. Some did it from across their own unincluded states, the rest from Manhattan to Los Angeles. And yes, stars like Burt Parks, known for hosting the Miss America competition and singing its championship song, took part in it. Miss America. 
History.com's article about the event shared the most 80s sentence to have ever 80s. Quote, Singer Robert Goulet was helicoptered to sparsely populated Vicksburg, Arizona with the resident of a homeless shelter to bury a time capsule commemorating the event. Dinkle, donkle, dinkle, donkle, someone's calling you, Goulet. In the end, the cost and organization was so enormous, Hands Across America earned a measly $15 million for charity as opposed to the $63 million We Are the World raised, which HAA had hoped to match, if not beat. <laughs> I haven't seen you guys since... Hands across America? That's what we were just saying. We almost made it. Couple oh, breaks in the chain, so right? Close. Hands across America! Putting all of her feelings of self-worth into a letter, Rose is done with her Debbie Downer phase and is excited to write the man back. Not because she wants to go out, just to thank him for the nice letter. Skipping off to write a response, Blanche and Dorothy are left delighted their friend is no longer feeling glum, smiling for the first time in weeks. Also smiling is Blanche, a coy, naughty smile that, before she confesses, you can tell she's about to confess. Which is what she does. Her crime? She was the author of the nice, dairy-praising letter. Dorothy watches in horror as Blanche shares that she wrote the letter to cheer Rose up. She can't believe someone would toy with their friend's emotions that way. Concerned, Dorothy asks the reasonable question, and what do we do exactly when she wants to go out with him? Simple, says Blanche. We'll just ship him off to Saskatchewan, the Canadian province about 2,700 miles north. Then we'll never hear from the writer, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a great mathematician that created calculus and the basic principles of physics, not the most common name for a single guy in his 50s in Florida in the 80s. Choosing such a well-known name has Dorothy flabbergasted. How could that have been the first name you thought of, Blanche? And why did that mean you had to use it? In all fairness, it wasn't the first name that came to her mind. What was was Ted Koppel, a journalist who is best known as the former host of the news program Nightline from 1980 to 2005. When so much has changed, there's a tendency to yearn for something familiar, something like an old shoe. Something substantive, warm, and reliable, yes. It's still here, Sunday morning on old CBS. And with poofy hair and puppet-like features, yeah, I could see how someone would compare him to the famous marionette puppet that delighted children on his NBC show from 1947 to 1960, Howdy Doody. It's hot. And with that, a proud Blanche declares herself a winner with gin. Later, perhaps in the week, but definitely in the day, we see a white Dracula jammy Dorothy and teal and black silk robe with teal nightgowned Blanche plotting their next letter over a pile of Oreos. Should Isaac write a poem? It's been a few weeks since he has. As Blanche speaks logically about such nonsense, a guilt-ridden Dorothy shouts that it's not him writing the poems. Lord Byron has written them. We're just copying them down. Lord Byron was an English poet in the late 1700s through early 1800s who was most famous for his long-form poem, Don Juan. 
Perhaps the girls, writing on loose leaf, a.k.a. lined notebook paper, used some of these more romantic quips of his. What a strange thing man is, and what a stranger thing woman. There is no such thing as a life of passion any more than a continuous earthquake or an eternal fever. Besides, who would ever have themselves in such a state? Lovers may be, and indeed generally are, enemies, but they never can be friends, because there must always be a spice of jealousy and a something of self in their speculations. Isn't that cute? <laughs> Using a purple pen and disguised writing, Blanche gets to work, but Dorothy can't take it. It's time to either confess the truth to Rose, or, my new code words for anything, it's time to ship Isaac Newton to Saskatchewan. But that simply can't be done, as Blanche points out. How could he find work as a citrus farmer in a place where the winter's temperature can get as low as 19 degrees Fahrenheit? Having to hear the defense of a made-up person has left Dorothy exasperated. Who needs a Rorschach test when you have Rose, who is falling for a man she's never met, who is a citrus farmer who writes poetry, might be moving to Saskatchewan, and writes said letters with a purple felt pen? Not only that... What does continuing to indulge the fantasy say about Dorothy and Blanche? Coming to join the gals is Sophia in her blue terrycloth robe, and she has a problem. Assuming that means she's constipated, Dorothy points out that the Metamucil, a fiber supplement that will help her with that issue, is on the top shelf. Top shelf of what exactly? One of the cabinets? Have you seen your tiny mother? And she's constipated? And you're going to make her do all that stretching? No thank you. Her problem isn't poopy, it's willy. She had a serious conversation with him, letting him down gently, to which he implied, I think, that he could get intimate with her every month and a half or so. Oh boy, my dude, no means no. When Rose comes in in her yellow nightgown, Blanche quickly hides her letter under her elbow. Who knows where that pen ended up? Luckily, Rose is too excited to notice Blanche has a paper exactly like Isaac uses because she has an idea. After reading his letters over and over, she's decided the potential to be with someone as great as he is outweighs the embarrassment of we met in the newspapers, and she wants to meet him in person, leaving Dorothy and Blanche in a bad situation. Reminding her she never wanted to meet him doesn't help. Rose said that as a blanket statement. Isaac's specialness overrides everything. Mad at her friend for dragging her into this, Dorothy gives Blanche her classic growl and monster claw combo while asking Rose how she could possibly know he was special. They've only met via letter. But this is more than letters. They feel like they've known each other for years, connecting on a totally different level. As Rose leaves, Blanche realizes they are left with one choice, to ship the citrus farmer to Saskatchewan. I knew as I was writing this that when we would view it together, Coco was going to have a visceral response to Dorothy's outfit in this next scene, which he did, calling it a saltwater taffy leprechaun and saying, holy effing S. <laughs> I had built it up in my mind mm -hmm. that it was going to be horrible when I saw it again, mm -hmm. and it was worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, be prepared, be prepared. Nothing could have prepared me for this. So much fabric and just a wrong color for anyone. For anything. And then they have like a like a Christmas thing going on because Blanche comes out in red and she's in green and then they're just next to each other all night. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like the way they dress her. And also it's a black tie affair, which we're going to get into. And they're both wearing that. Neither of which look black tie appropriate. No. I hate it. Did we see the shoes? 
I don't think we do, and it's very possible she's barefoot if it was long enough. Oh, oh, she'd like to do that? Uh, yeah, I don't know if we've talked about this. Uh, B. Arthur actually had it in her contract that if it wasn't required for a scene that she didn't have to wear shoes. So very often you'll see, like if she, especially when she crosses her legs on the couch, mm -hmm. uh, you can see her little bare feet sticking Ooh, out. Fun. Yeah, so she has bare feet a lot. I'm like, oh, I feel you. I'm barefoot all the time. Yeah, you are, even in this freezing cold weather. <laughs> If I didn't loathe crushed velvet or this green color, I would probably wear something like this to my own wedding. In case you aren't sure of which outfit we're discussing, it's, uh, well, it can only be called formal androgynous Riddler. What are the chilliest 12 inches in the world? The chilliest 12 inches in the world? Cold feet. In a long skirt and long past-the-waist jacket of green crushed velvet and tuxedo shirt and matching bow tie, Dorothy is ready to take over the night and Gotham. In all black with a hint of sequins is Sophia, who has borrowed Dorothy's dress watch without asking. She only didn't ask because she didn't want to distract Dorothy from her battle against her cowlick. A cowlick is a section of hair that grows differently than the rest or how you would like to have your hair go. They basically look like a cow licked your hair and it stuck. A lady in red, Blanche, comes in, donning red slacks and a fully sequined red blouse that is somehow equally casual and formal, who has decided it's silly for them to take three cars to the reception that they're all headed to. Dorothy and Howard and Sophia can go in one car. Sophia is dateless, thanks to Willie. He pestered her so much, no guy at the center wanted to take her out. Showing her character and light blue nightgown is Rose, who is asking Blanche if she can borrow her own earrings back from her. Informing Rose of the car plan, Blanche tells her that she and her cousin Arnold will be riding with her. But Arnold isn't her date. And who the hell is Arnold and where did he come from? Excited to hear her friend will be single too, Sophia proposes that she and Rose sit together and guess people's weight. Oh boy, Sophia, that bully behavior. Don't let anyone overhear you, or just don't do it. Rose has to pass though. The thing is, she does have a date. One Isaac Newton. When she learned of Isaac's Canadian fate of moving and becoming a smudge pot supervisor, she had but one choice, to look him up on the phone and give him a call. Horrified, Dorothy and Blanche can only cringe at the situation they've put themselves in. It's quite comical. Get it? A comical situation? Sitcom? This thing we're watching? Besides knowing they're inevitably getting busted, they have to be wondering what kind of guy with a name like that gets a call from a strange woman who then asks him out and they accept. A smudge pot is a heating device used to protect fruit harvests in cold temperatures. Seeing as oranges flourish in tropical climates, to be that far north, you would need to dome your oranges. Fun fact from Britannica.com, it wasn't until the 1920s when the popularity of orange juice and orange consumption for vitamins that the growing of oranges grew out of what they were known for before as desert fruits. It's hard to imagine after Coco, you and I both grew up surrounded by oranges in California. A phone book, children, was a device you could hold in your hand to look up information of local businesses and people. I know that sounds like a smartphone, but uh, oh no. These were the days you needed to know the different color coordinated to the different categories and to know how to look for things in alphabetical order. For example, businesses were in the yellow pages, residents in white. Once a year or so, a heavy, thick book would get dropped on your doorstep and you would leave it in your junk drawer to use when calling a plumber, a neighbor, or a restaurant. 
Depending on your city's population, the thickness varied. And thanks to technology and a lack of interest, phone books are nearly obsolete. I couldn't find who had, like, the record thickest book, but New York had separate ones for each borough, all hovering around an inch or two, and according to one Redditor, Chicago's in the 1970s was 850 pages. Those were the days. Those were the days. Take 10 minutes to find one guy you're trying to call. Anxiously awaiting Isaac's arrival, Blanche and Dorothy start getting into the details as to how this could have come to fruition. After finding Isaac Q. Newton in the phone book, Rose simply called and said she wouldn't take no for an answer. Elated, Rose heads to her bedroom to get dressed while the girls try to make a plan to correct their mistake. Dorothy is shocked at someone saying yes to a cold call date, but it's a real thing that used to happen. In fact, Emily and I discussed it on our other show, Murder in the Rain, and how someone answering such a call ended up being a murder victim. But for Blanche, it's commonplace. Experiencing a Rose moment of, duh, Blanche says there's nothing to worry about because after this one night, Isaac is going to be moving to Canada. Except that that's their version. Phone book guy, well, the odds are not as good that he's moving to the north tomorrow. Being optimistic, Blanche hopes for the best. What if he's the love of Rose's life? Things could just work out. Thinking that the elderly man that has knocked on the door and is holding flowers is Isaac, Dorothy quickly loses all hope for that outcome. But that isn't Isaac. It's Wilfred Whitney Cheswick, a.k.a. Willie, a.k.a. Colin Drake. Colin Drake had a career spanning over 50 years and 60 credits. He was in the 1950s series of Sherlock Holmes, Charade, Little House on the Prairie, Highway to Heaven, 30-something, and Cheers. Trying to lure back his victim, I mean woo his crush, Willie has arrived, and in lieu of a hat and ascot, he has flowers. Finding his dear widow Patrillo, Willie will not take no for an answer once again as he demands that she be his date to the reception. Sophia is well aware he won't, that's why she gives him the chin flick. The New York Post says that the chin flick, or as it's called in France, the beard, is basically a sign for get lost. Once again, Dorothy is stuck in the middle century ages and is shocked at her mother's rude response, guilting her into telling Willie that since he rented the monkey suit, he's owed a date with her. But she won't say no to anyone who asks her to dance. Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary friends, you don't owe anything to anyone ever. Oh, you bought me a drink? Cool. Doesn't mean I owe you a conversation. That's manipulation. We went out for an expensive dinner and you insisted you pay for it and now you think you get a little something-something in exchange? That's extortion. If your stalker shows up at your house in a rented tuxedo and you don't want to go out with him, don't. A tuxedo is called a monkey suit in relation to an organ grinder's monkey and according to some people on Quora.com can also be talking about bouncers at clubs who would sometimes be in suits and were very large and in charge, built like gorillas. Yes, I know monkeys aren't gorillas. Assuring Sophia that once they're on the dance floor, she won't want to leave his arms, she agrees to the deal. She doesn't see that happening with this Piccadilly. Piccadilly isn't often used in name-calling, but I've narrowed it down to a few options of what she's saying. She's referencing an area in London known as Piccadilly Circus, or she's calling him a Piccadilly, one of those obnoxiously large frilled collars from the Three Musketeers times. Desperate to do the right thing, Dorothy begs Blanche to join her in confessing to Rose and apologizing. But before they can do what's right, the doorbell rings. 
On the other side, in a wide-collared jacket of dark purple mixed with the color your cheap black leggings turn when you've washed them too many times, and a light sorbet orange striped shirt is one Isaac Q. Newton. Playing Isaac Newton, portraying him, frankly, as someone on the autism spectrum, and it makes me nervous that the -the behind-the-scenes conversations were sprinkled with, oh boys, is the one, the only, Paul, George from Empty Nest, Dooley. Paul is one of the most recognizable and prolific character actors in Hollywood, but I know it's hard for us fans to get past that one catastrophic indiscretion of playing George on the infamously despised episode coming up at the end of this season, Empty Nest. But we aren't there yet. Now we can still enjoy his presence. Still working to this day, Paul has 217 credits. Some highlights, because I obviously can't name them all, are going all the way back to when he was on Get Smart. Then Bewitched, Popeye, Captain Kangaroo, 16 Candles, Sesame Street, Alf, 30-something, Evening Shade with Mr. Burt Reynolds, Wonder Years, Mad About You, My Boyfriend's Back, Chicago Hope, My So-Called Life, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Desperate Housewives, ER, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and of course, La La. And he even got to work with Betty again on Hot in Cleveland. While trying to find a clip of him on the show, I struggled, and I ended up on this blooper from Hot in Cleveland. We don't need to hear his voice anyway. It might trigger some of you. Action! Valerie! I'm going! (laughs) I know what action means! So do I, but it's been so long! Stiffly making his way through the room, awkwardly asking Dorothy, then Blanche, if they are Rose, that's when they realize he's Isaac. Attempting to break the ice, Dorothy jokes that he must get a lot of teasing for his name, his reply to which is pure confusion. Why would anyone joke about my name? Asking Isaac to relax and have a seat, the ladies learn far too much about him, that he can't ever get comfortable and he has an excessive sweating problem. In fact, in that moment, he is actively sweating through his jacket pointing out he might be a bit too casual, which in this situation is a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, we've got a Christmas nightmare of clothing right here. Blanche mentions to Isaac it's a black tie affair. No problem. Isaac's black tie is in his coat pocket. I guess a green tie is appropriate, though. Right, Dorothy? Trying to understand the motives of a man who goes to someone's house for a blind date via a phone call, Dorothy asks what he must have been thinking. Not too much. He doesn't go out very often, hence the teasing he received from his housemates at the boarding house, which is kind of like an extended-stay hostel, a house with a room or a few rented out. Pretty much he just doesn't have a stable living situation. Coming out after changing, Rose looks fabulous in a light pink, dazzling dress, and she is delighted to meet her date. Immediately, Isaac showers her with compliments, which she accepts, but still roses out by explaining the dress has been worn once or twice, but the pantyhose are new. Before the two weirdos can fall in love, Dorothy is desperately trying to get Rose to the lanai to explain what is happening. Isaac compliments those, too. Well, not her panty part of the hose, but just the hose part, which is what he can see. Seeing how Isaac and Rose are hitting it off, Blanche thinks twice about confessing. Maybe this will just work out. Knowing their shared fondness for dairy, Rose asks Isaac if he wants anything. Well, funny she should ask. To calm his nerves, he'd like some cheese. It always helps. Only leaving Blanche feeling like she's somehow part of this matchmaking miracle. 
I really enjoyed that as he was talking about never being comfortable and sweaty and anxious, you felt that that was relatable to you. And then when he asked for cheese for his nerves, you felt that that was towards me. Ooh, a new transition to a fancy schmancy banquet hall. Dorothy and Blanche have sent their dates to go get them drinks so they can find Rose, who has since disappeared with her cheese-loving date. Then, the reality of what their situation is finally sets in. They've left their friend with a totally weird stranger. A stranger that could be some sort of serial killer, just like those I cover on my other show, Murder in the Rain. And she's right. Those are ideal conditions for Rose to be kidnapped or worse. Now that Blanche is fearful for her friend's well-being, she finally sees Dorothy's point and agrees they should tell Rose the truth, if they can find her, and if she's still alive. Luckily, she is alive, although halfway bored to death as she listens to Isaac talk about the perks of being a vice principal, like having a garage full of fundraising drive chocolates and leading a French club. That French club seems to be working as he responds to Rose's praise towards the work he's doing for himself with a merci. While doing soul-searching, Isaac has decided what will fill his soul more than French clubs and chocolates. No, it's not being an astronaut. He's not a fan of peeing in his suit. Poor dumb Isaac. Doesn't he know that with a space toilet you pee into a funnel? And poor dumb Isaac. Doesn't he know the name Isaac Newton is already famous? And doesn't he also know that local traffic reporters aren't exactly household names? No matter. He still wants to follow his heart and get a chopper to report the traffic. Well, Tickle Rose impressed. A vice principal, a traffic reporter in the making, and a citrus farmer? Before he can get confused about that last bit, Dorothy and Blanche have finally found their friend. And just when you think Isaac can't get more unappealing, he shares that it's a good thing Rose waited as long as she did to call him. Even though she wishes she had done it sooner, he tells her it would have been hard as his mother, who he apparently lives with, except many plot whoopsie here, earlier he said he lived at a boarding house, well, somehow he was just recently given permission to have a phone. To get some alone time with Rose, the girls send Isaac off for champagne, and he's not sure if that's the one in the bowl or the bottle. Isaac, come on, I don't drink either, but you've got to at least learn some basics. As the girls start checking in with Rose, she shares how shocked she is that Isaac is shy and he's not willing or perhaps able to be as romantic as he had been in those letters. Being an understanding angel, Rose is not going to push it, but she is frustrated that she's asked over and over, but he won't explain the workings of a smudge pot. Wanting to take Isaac up on the dancing he was always writing about, Rose suggests they head to the dance floor. Once again, being the wrong Isaac, he's confused but goes along with it. As they lose Rose through the crowd, they've lost their chance to confess the truth. But before they can get too upset, we encounter Sophia, who is still being pestered, stalked, and bothered by Willie, who is being kind of threatening about her not being able to get rid of him. She can't be bothered to listen to that British gibberish. She needs him to hold the plastic bag she just pulled from her tiny purse so she can fill it with goodies from the buffet, a.k.a. a very Corrine Howell move, a.k.a. my Grammy. Making his case, Willie pleads with Sophia, I know you have other men, but I love you for you, not your money. As he continues to protest too much that he loves her with all his heart and soul, only wanting to protect the wealthy Willow, Sophia pumps the brake. You got your brains and your ass caught? 
I only told the other guy at the center I was rich so he would take me out. I don't even have five bucks. And that, finally, is the answer that repels Willie. So maybe he wasn't a psycho killer, qu'est-ce que c'est, but all of the hunting was a red flag. He really was only after her money. So when he learns that she isn't actually rich, well, he's out of there. Coming back from the dance floor, it's clear things have not gone well. Rose is mad at Isaac for not dancing. He's confused because he told her he couldn't. That only adds to her frustration because his letter said he loved to dance. It's now come to a head. Rose goes on and on about all the letters, and Isaac can only respond in confusion, leaving Rose feeling like she's taking crazy pills or that she's been the victim of some horrible prank. To defend his silly name, Isaac proclaims he has no sense of humor. Well, if that isn't enough of a reason to run for the hills, I don't know what is. If someone told me they didn't have a sense of humor, they might as well say they speak only Mandarin. We're not going to be speaking the same language, nor will we understand each other. Even if Rose could get past that, she would probably be putting herself in the position to be a widow again. According to lifehack.org, people with a good sense of humor have been shown to have a longer lifespan, are able to relieve stress, anxiety, and anger, and being able to laugh at yourself is a positive trait that attracts people to you. The girls can't let this go on any longer. They must tell Rose the truth, and Dorothy does, flat out. We wrote the letters. With apologies, excuses, and panicked begging for forgiveness, the girls spill it all. Rose, who looks beyond disgusted, can only respond by walking away. Isaac can only respond with relief. He was worried he had actually written letters. Rushing into the most ornate bathroom of all time, Rose makes her way around the circular sofa in the middle of the room, past the multiple desks and chairs and perfume table, past all of the art, and to one of the stalls. The first is out of order, so she chooses number two. <laughs> Following behind, the girls come in and find the one door she's gone into, and it is locked. As the culprits beg and plead at the door, Rose is not interested. She's not moving, and neither is Blanche, until they resolve this. Coming off a bit defensive, Dorothy says they wrote the letters out of friendship. How can that be, Rose wonders. You made me feel embarrassed, foolish, and upset. Not feelings that should be evoked by friends. Wandering around, looking for his date, Isaac has found himself in the den of ornateness, the ladies' room. A flustered Dorothy can't believe he's there. Isaac can't believe ladies have to pee on a big blue couch whose lid doesn't open. This guy. After Isaac is shoo-shooed out the door, Dorothy goes back to begging. She's forgetting to validate Rose's feelings, though, continuing to explain the reasons they did it and that they didn't think it would go to such extremes. What they're failing to realize is that it isn't that she's mad about the letters or that they didn't tell her. She's sad and hurt at the idea that she thought someone wanted to know all those little things you share with a partner. Why work is hard. Why she eats in the park. That she likes to dance and cook weird foods. In those letters, Rose shared what made Rose Rose. And it wasn't just heard, it was appreciated and celebrated. She was being shown love, and it felt good to have those kinds of feelings again. Feeling like she had lost a person that cared for her, the girls stop her there. You do have that person in your life. It's us. We wrote those things, and while the context may have been a lie, the words weren't. Hearing those things and being able to be there for her was all them, and they meant it. That's when Rose realizes they are right to some degree. She is loved by her friends, and that she can't be mad at. 
coming out, they make up, and the room, now full of women waiting for the one usable loo, are all cheering. Be it because they made up or because they can pee now, either way, they're happy. With everything as it should be, the girls make their way back to their dates. Blanche, oh boy, excitedly proclaims she needs to get tipsy so Howard can take advantage of her. Double O boy, the problem here is that Howard is who she gave to Dorothy as her date. Whoops. Friendships, as any relationship, can be hard to navigate at times. The last thing you want is to see your friend sad, but when they're pining for something you can't provide, you might feel helpless. But feeling helpless doesn't mean your friend's happiness is your responsibility. Sure, they mean well, but if the girls really felt those things about Rose, they should have just told her. She shouldn't be finding her only happiness with a man, and as a friend, you shouldn't feel obligated to keep her from feeling anything negative. That's on her. So instead of writing fake letters, they could have listened through a whole St. Olaf story without an eye roll or a hit on the head. Have her cook her nasty foods and talk about her family without sarcasm. There are plenty of ways you can show love to a friend that doesn't put anyone in a position where they're begging for forgiveness outside a bathroom door. Intentions are nice and all, but embarrassment is the worst. In the same vein, as much as we are all culturally trained to find value in ourselves based on having a partner or not, finding value in yourself and loving yourself should come from yourself, not friends writing letters or humorless men at parties. Also, don't say yes to a guy just because he won't leave you alone. There's no way that's going to work out well. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we kick off the holiday season with Twas the Nightmare Before Christmas. Wowie, wow, wow. Powerful stuff. Yeah. Out the gate. Boom. Coco with the hard facts. Well, it's really speculation. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. <laughs> I like eating M&Ms because they're alive. Did you see the new commercial? The yellow one died. Are you... <gasps> What? I know. Someone ate J.K. Simmons, the yellow <gasps> M&M, and he became a ghost. No. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you. I survived it. <laughs> Maybe you can. <laughs> yeah. Because that's so pathetic. It's not pathetic. Ugh. To have put up with his stuff because of how I felt about myself, that is pathetic. You are pathetic. Well, I was pathetic is what I'm saying. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you went from stopping me to agreeing but inaccurately <laughs> real fast. <laughs> no, you're not pathetic. You are pathetic. <laughs> no, I don't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> Stop pouting over there. This is hor the first thing I said was Hippocrates. According to Wiktionary.com. <laughs> let me try to turn my. <laughs> Go ahead, but let me turn myself. I was down. just gonna bulldoze over it. <laughs> I'm turned all the way down now. You can bull bulldoze away. That'd be a good tattoo.
a snowplow, maybe pushing over um, Calvin and Hobbes, and they're peeing on some some sort of <laughs> other oh, tractor. Is it Mr. Plow? It's Mr. Plow. <laughs> According to Wiktionary.com, it's ancient Greek. Greek physician. <laughs> According to Wiktionary.com, it's ancient. Ancient Greek. Well, you were heard that time in the library. <laughs> yeah, so it was just bulbous, and then not until he was like. <laughs> Please stop saying bulbous. Well, it was bulbous, and it wasn't until he was like in his fifties, I think. He had a hernia, and it started at his belly butt, so it was, like, extra, well, bulbous. <laughs> this is it. Yes. <laughs> hernia time, finally. Yeah, a little tight, like a cramp or, like, a, yeah. Just, like, like a, a stitch pinch. or something? Yeah. yeah. Just, like, uh-oh, no. That was it. It's ripping. Here I go. Guts are just going to fly <laughs> out of my body. T-shirt's going to get ruined. Perhaps it's a southern thing with incest rubbing, rubbing. Oh. Wow. And I did. I did always love going to someone's house, and they're like, "Hey, take some lemons with you on the way out." Because you love lemons. I love. Le- I would take oranges too. I love. I love taking a friend's fruit off their tree and taking it home with me, and letting it go bad. <laughs> <laughs> Every person with a friend with a garden, you go and you visit, and you come up with a pile of things, and you're like, "What am I going to do with this eight foot long zucchini?" Throw it away on the weekend. Throw it away in three months when mm-hmm. I say, "Like, well, at least I held on to it because my friend gave it to me." <laughs> It's true. You're going to cold call me now and be like, hey, I found your number in the phone book. You want to go out sometime? Would that work? No. <laughs> Candy cane. So, see, I'm not a complete idiot. <laughs> I, I've never said you were any portion I of have. an idiot. Well, you are. And you did call me pathetic earlier. So, Please. <laughs> You, that's our like biggest foundation, I think. Yeah. That's like our number one thing. And I and can't our just, imagine. Our sexual heat. <laughs> Humor and sex heat. Ew. Why are you acting so messed up towards me? Because I hate you. Oh my God, I was quoting Zoolander. You're supposed to say, why are you acting so messed up towards me? And you said, I hate you. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.